All right, today uh, we look at, in this passage, at a religious conversion. What? (laughs) You know, uh, religious people are converted. I mean, religious people read their Bibles. Religious people believe in God. Religious people go to church. Uh, Religious people um, are responsible and moral and self-disciplined and hardworking. Yes. And according to the book of Job, and particularly our passage today, religious people are also the farthest away from real spiritual change. Farther away from irreligious people, from those who don't believe the Bible, who don't pray, who don't go to church who regularly break the Ten Commandments. It's crazy, isn't it? So welcome to a religious conversion. Uh, Welcome um, to the conversion of Job's three friends. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, what words? Well, we've looked at 38 through 42, two major, incredible sermons from God to Job with three friends listening in. Ooh, wouldn't you love to have been there? Well, we were. (laughs) We were. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namelathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, um, fill us with your spirit. Would you make Uh, this passage clear to our minds and real to our hearts. Would you allow us to forget ourselves and actually find ourselves as we find you? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger, why Eliphaz the Temanite? Eliphaz is probably the eldest, so he is the one in the pecking order to be addressed first. He's usually the spokesperson. He's the first one that spoke in the book of Job, remember? We had those three speech cycles, and he always was the leadoff, the leadoff hitter, followed by Bildad, then Zophar. Uh, so the Lord speaks to Eliphaz and says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Anyone who reads Job 
uh, knows something's not right with Job's three friends. Uh, You don't have to go to church. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to pray regularly to know that Job's three friends are lousy friends, right? Um, That is clear. It's on the page. It's instinctive. It's, it's there for all of us to see. So, so what does a lousy friend look like, however? Uh, well, we have, we've walked through 37 some odd chapters of what it looks like. So we're just going to kind of summarize it right here because that's the theme. We're now addressing the three friends. Uh, throughout the book of Job, these three friends have been seen for 37 chapters to be unloving. Um, they were seen not to be comforters. They were supposed to comfort, but they weren't comforters. Instead, what did they become? They became agents of affliction. Do you remember? Job actually even said, what miserable, what miserable comforters you are. You're killing me, is what he's saying, right? Uh, and why is that? Why are they unloving? Uh, here's the reason. They were more committed to and more controlled by their need to be right their need to win, their need to be in control than they were to loving Job. They were more committed to and controlled by their need to be right and in control and win than to deeply, deeply identify with Job. When we were uh, driving, Nancy and I were driving to Houston yesterday and and uh, we were, had seen Rafer and Lori, and we were in the, um, the waiting area uh, after talking about it. And she just looked at me and she said, I, I, I can't imagine being Rafer right now or uh, Lori right now or Carson or William right now. Um, and then a bunch of us were in the waiting room and, and we told Lori that. And then we said, but we're going to try. I thought they were all gone. (laughs) I didn't think I had another feeling left. I only had two. So when you use up one, you only got one left. All right. Um, they, uh, They didn't help carry his burden. They didn't seek to identify with him. Um, sympathy means to have their pain in your heart. Uh, they were lousy friends because they were unloving. And because they weren't driven by love, they just got more petty as the days went on. They got more nitpicky as the days went on. They got more critical and brash and angry uh, and destructive and hard and calloused as the story goes on. They don't get better They unravel and get worse as the time goes on. Also throughout the book, we saw that Job's three friends were seen to be disloyal. In other words, they betrayed Job. Um, In marriage, we would say they broke the vow of for better or for worse. See, they were with Job when he was highly successful. They were with Job back in chapter 1. Remember what was said of Job back in chapter 1? The greatest man in the ancient Near East. I'm with you, Job. Great man. 
They were with him when he was wealthy. They were with him when everything he touched turned to gold. They were with him with all his lands and his influence. They were with him when he was the one that went to court and everybody turned and listened to. They were with him. They were with him when it was advantageous to their own reputation. They were with him when being with him gave him favor with the eyes of other people. They were with him when it even was advantageous to their financial security They were with him when it was good. And they couldn't leave him quick enough when everything turned south. When there was nothing left in it for them. And instead, they didn't, they abandoned him. They walked away from him. No one took a bullet for Job. Instead, they actually got out their own guns and started pumping them with some more. They took the side of the critics. We would call these friends fair-weathered friends. We'd call them two-faced. Like Batman's nemesis. Why were these friends such bad friends? Well, God gives us the answer. Isn't that amazing? In verse 7, he actually gives us the answer. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The reason they were bad friends is because they had a bad view of God. What we believe about God really matters. You ever thought of that? I mean, what you believe right now about God will determine what kind of friend you are. And I am. What we believe about God right now will shape and structure and order your inner life. Psychologists will say your psychological makeup. Uh, We say the same thing. We just call it in the scripture, the spirit, the heart. In other words, your belief system, the, what your interpretive lens of looking through the world and looking at yourself and looking at one another and, and relating to the world, that belief system, your belief system is shaped by your view of God. But not only that, it's even, it's even uh, deeper. It's like this other sign. You've got the mind on one side, the head side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, you have what's called the affections or the heart or the, the desiring, the trusting, the hoping, the resting, the relying, the, the desire for happiness side of us, the heart, the affections. That part gets shaped and structured and ordered by what we believe of God. So our inner life Get shaped by our view and our outer life. What we say, how we communicate, our relationships and our styles of relating to one another and our visible, nonverbal, communicative triggers, our behavior, our conduct, our life choices, the direction we head in, how we relate to our careers, how we relate to conflict, how we relate to successes, how we relate to suffering and pain, all of it is shaped and ordered and structured by what we believe about God. Now, some of you are thinking, 
But, Jeff, my deepest relational scars come from people who believe right things about God. And I say to you, I know, me too. And I say to you, and I've given my fair share too. There's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, The first is there are always gaps between what we intellectually affirm that we believe. You know, if you were all to sit here right now, whether you're in church for the first time or whether you've been in church for 40 years, you're going to sit down and I I was to say to you, hey, I want you to write out your doctrinal statement. Write out what you believe. I believe, right? We can all intellectually write down some things that, well, most of you would be orthodox, right? (laughs) Jason, I don't know. He's got little things out there that just might, we'd have to talk to him a little bit. But most of us would be able to affirm intellectually things that are pretty orthodox and pretty within the bounds of Scripture and might even have some confessions to them, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg. It might come in that kind of a package, and we can intellectually affirm that. But there's a gap between what we can intellectually affirm and what we really believe. Always gaps between what you intellectually affirm and what you truly trust what you truly rest in, what you truly rely upon, what you truly rejoice in. There are always gaps between what you intellectually affirm and what God by His Spirit makes genuinely clear to your mind and real to your heart. Always gaps. Second response would be this. There's always remaining sin in us, and it's always powerful. If you've become a Christian, your relationship to sin has been radically changed. You, sin doesn't relate to you with guilt anymore. That's incredible. Sin can no longer condemn you. It can no longer give you death. It also can no longer have dominion over you. It can no longer say, man, I'm your king and And you can resist me all you want, but I rule. And sin can no longer have ultimate presence in your life. It has a termination date. One day, one day, sin will be forever cut off from you. Forever. Right? Now that relationship to sin changes when you become a Christian. But please hear me. The nature of sin doesn't. The nature of sin in you is still nasty. The nature of sin is still dark. The nature of sin is still disintegrating. The nature of sin is still dehumanizing. The nature of sin is still your death. So it doesn't matter if you have someone who's not a Christian and someone who is a Christian. They both have sin in their life. And when they are unloving and disloyal and lousy friends, it's equally destructive and hurtful, and painful, okay? All right, so that's my stab at why there's a gap. Now, the three friends believed right things about God. We've seen it. We've gone through this book now, and we've seen that they believe what? They believe that God 
is all-powerful and he's in control of all things. These are good things to believe. They believe this. They also believe what? They believe in God's justice. Pretty good, don't they? They got that one down really, really well. They were reminding Job of it over and over again. God's justice is his holiness in action towards evil or darkness or wickedness. So God's just. He's holy. And when he comes in contact with evil or darkness and sin, his holiness in action toward it is called justice. Well, they got that. They said, look, God, they would tell Job he's all controlling, he's powerful, and he's just. But they did not believe. They did not believe the most fundamental, the most basic, the most crucial ABCs of God. They did not believe the core thrust of God's essence and glory. They did not believe the major fingerprint of God. Look at verse 7. You have not spoken of me what is right. Oh, wait a minute. They just said that you're all powerful and you're in control and you're just. Mm-hmm. But you've missed the most fundamental core identity of who I am. You've missed the clearest window of the heart of God. What did they miss about God? Verse 8. Now, therefore, take seven bowls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The three friends completely missed the heart of God. What did they miss? His grace. The clearest window into who God is, the most fundamental, basic ABCs of God is, I'm gracious. Not, look at the prayer, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Not to deal with you according to your folly. This is the grace of God. This means not to deal with you according to what you deserve. According to what you earn, according to what you perform, according to what you really work for, according to what is rightfully yours. Here's the point. The three friends went to church, they read their Bibles, and they prayed, but the grace of God was not real to them. Now, I don't know if this is their conversion, like they weren't... They were religious folks, and they weren't Christians, and then this is when they become Christians. I don't know. Um, That could be. But it also could be that in some areas of their life, at some levels in their life, they were Christians, and they did believe the grace of God, but the grace of God was not believed at other levels of their life. Like, if they're married, they're marriage. They're parenting. We certainly know the grace of God wasn't real in their friendships. That much is clear. It wasn't real in their communication. It wasn't real in their interrelational dynamics. It wasn't real in the way they related to Job. It wasn't real in the way they related to suffering. It wasn't real in the way they related to pain. We do know that. All of us, if we're Christians, believe in the grace of God and have it made real 
at certain places in our life. But in other places in our life, it's not. The grace of God was not real uh, in certain areas of their life. So the three friends, here's how the way they did. They related to God, and they related to themselves, and they related to everything in their life according to or on the basis of their performance. Earning it. So here's what happens when we do this, and this is what they did. When you do this, when, when you relate to God according to what you deserve and according to what you earn, you connect to his love, you connect to his blessing based on your performance and how you're doing and your standards, whether it's your standards, his standards, someone else's standards. When you relate to suffering and pain related to standards, when you relate to uh, relationships and friendships based on earning it and worth and performance, here's what happens. You're always on trial. And the verdict is always hanging over your head whether you will be declared a success or a failure. So when you're always on trial and you're always in the courtroom and you're always looking to standards, whether you succeed or fail, if you meet those standards, you're successful. If you don't meet those standards, you're a failure. But when you're always living your life on trial, you're a very insecure person. Yeah, you might be successful for that hour, but then the trial never ends. So the next play, the next recital, the next presentation, the next business deal, the next conversation, the next person's thoughts of you, it's always on trial. We become bad friends because we have a bad view of God. We miss the clearest window into the ABCs of God, His grace. Now, by the time the reader, any reader, by the time any reader gets this far in Job, let's say up to 37, <laughs> and you've, you've lasted 37 chapters of Job, you've endured 37 chapters, any reader that gets that far, you know what's building in you? Anyone. A desire for payback, Right? I can't wait. You know, we can't wait. The story's building. We can't wait for these three friends to get what they deserve. We can't wait for the payback to come. We can't wait for God to dress them down. We can't wait for God to put them in their place. We can't wait for that. I mean, payback, the passion for payback is why we love action movies. And we buy spy novels. I'm on a good one. Gabriel Allon, some Israeli assassin. I love it. Why do we love it? Because in those movies and in those stories, someone is going to incarnate justice. Someone. Someone's going to pull the trigger. And the more explosions and the more blood and the more gore, the better. Right? Well, at least for the guys. Right? Why? Because payback and justice on the big screen feels so good because we're image bearers. The psalmist says we're little gods. We're made like God in his likeness, in his image. And so it's hardwired into your very DNA to have a passion 
for justice. For evil and darkness and wickedness to be defeated. Crushed. Look at verse 8 again. Now therefore take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. God does not give payback to these three lousy friends. He makes friends with them. This is completely unexpected. The search team had a, a dinner this past Wednesday with one of the candidates, and in the course of the conversation between all the crunching at Chewy's on chips and salsa, between the crunching, we had a conversation, and parenting came up. And this conversation about parenting, uh, those that had children, had more than one children, that were older, uh, even those that were young, were all nodding that, that yes, uh, we all are guilty of treating our firstborn child differently than we do or did our second or third or fourth or fifth, right? We're all guilty of it. Uh, Cal is my firstborn son. When he was a little guy, we would go to HEB, and there'd be pictures of Darth Maul. This is the Star Wars guy. Remember Darth Maul? Pictures of Star Darth Maul up there. Well, to me, he looked like the devil, because, of course, I know what the devil looks like. So we would go down walking, and I'd see all these Darth Maul pictures, and I'd get between him and Darth Maul. <laughs> I didn't want him seeing the devil. And I wouldn't let him watch Star Wars. <laughs> when we would play uh, army men and we play guys, uh, bad guys got zapped. Good guy zapped bad guy. Ooh, that guy got zapped. Yeah. Okay, well, on my day off this past week, I'm walking with my fifth child. He's two years old. He sees a buggy. He sees a bug. And he goes running after the bug. And he finds the bug. He looks down at the bug. He raises his knee as far as his chin will go. He balls his tiny little fists. He throws his head back and the veins in his neck, just like his daddy, starts sticking out. He lets out this battle yell. Ah! And he slams his foot down and says, Kill the buggy, daddy! Kill the buggy! I started looking around for my neighbors and people that were driving in the street. I was waiting for CPS to come pick me up. If you were an Israelite parent and you were reading Job to your family and you got to verse 8 of chapter 42 and you had a little child, a fifth born child, a fourth born, a third born, a second born, they would say to you, Daddy, you didn't read it right. It should say, kill the buggies, God. God killed them all. God loves lousy friends, and this is completely unexpected. How does God love Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar? Answer, he sent Job to save them. Do you see that? Job had to save 
his stupid friends. So Job was the real friend. Job was loving. Job was loyal. Job was the real friend to those who were not, to those who sinned against him, to those who betrayed him. And of course, years later, the better Job shows up to save his stupid friends. He also offered up a burnt offering. Do you see that in verse 8? There's a burnt offering offered up, seven bowls, seven rams. A burnt offering is a sacrifice offering. It's a sacrifice for sin. And this better Job does offer up a burnt offering. He does offer up a sacrificial sin offering, but not of seven bowls and seven rams. He offers up his own blood, his own life. Um, He also, this better Job, prays for his stupid friends. You see that? And he prays that God would not deal with them, would not deal with them according to their folly. This better Job prays, oh God, do not deal with them according to their unloving ways, their disloyalty, their being a lousy friend. But deal with them according to your grace. What they don't deserve. Oh, throw open your heart over them. God loves lousy friends. And it's shocking. So when you get that, when you get two things, if you get two things, if I get two things, something really big happens. Because it happened to these three friends. If we get, number one, that we are lousy friends, and we get that God loves lousy friends, this will always happen. Real, deep, spiritual change. Whether it's the converting kind for the first time, or it's the ongoing life change that we all experience, it only happens if we get these two things. You're a lousy friend. And God loves you. He gave a better Job to save you. Now, what does that change look like? And this is how we're going to end. When you really change, I mean, look what happens in verse 9. Here's the change that happened to these guys. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namalite, went and did what the Lord had told them. Oh, man. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Everything these three men knew about God Everything these three men knew about themselves, everything these three men knew about life changed. Because they got the grace of God. 
You want your marriage to change? Get that you're a lousy husband and you're a lousy wife. And God loves you. Now you'll start becoming a good husband and a good wife. You're a lousy friend. You've been unloving and disloyal. You don't know what to do. Well, get it. Acknowledge it. Yeah, you are a lousy friend. Now, get that God loves lousy friends. So go reconcile. Go restore. Go seek forgiveness. Go be forgiven. Jump in there. Don't be afraid. Sit with them while they're... Just sit with them. Uh, when we really change, you'll want to be God's friend. Man, they, they're on their way. Would you say, God, you bet, I'm there. I love this. Being your friend changes everything. And notice what also happens to them. If we were to have, like, we do have a rest of the story. We're going to get to it next week. And I don't think the three friends come up. But I think we get that their relationship with Job had changed. I bet I'm willing to bet if there was a chapter 43, it would show three real friends. Because when you get the grace of God, that Jesus had to die for stupid friends like you, you'll start becoming a good friend. (laughs) And you'll actually hold your breath you'll actually start loving your lousy friends.